This is The Guardian. Today, for more than two decades, One Guardian column has been publishing some of the most extraordinary human experiences put to print. We go behind the scenes. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I have a planning document that has sort of loads of ideas. And I do think sometimes if you had no context and looked at that document and all the titles floating around, you would be like, who is this person? Rebecca Liu is a commissioning editor at The Guardian and in a big global news organisation with lots of different roles, her job might involve one of the weirdest and, in my opinion, best. I let a baby bird nest in my hair for 84 days. Keanu Reeves crashed my wedding. These stories are all true, and they're all from one particular section of The Guardian, probably my favourite section. It's called Experience. I'm Britain's dullest woman. And for two decades now, it's been collecting some of the strangest, most interesting, and often poignant things that have happened to people. I've got the best mullet in the United States. I didn't burp for more than 20 years. I paddled a giant pumpkin down a river for 11 hours. And I gave birth at a Metallica concert. Over the years, a lot of readers have had questions about experience. Where do they find these people? When is an experience worthy of an experience column? And what happens after these stories are published? Today, three of those stories, starting with one about a woman living alone who hears unusual things in her house and tells herself it's probably nothing. But she's wrong. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the experience column, some of its best stories and how it's made. So when I was 20, I looked for apartments in Enumclaw, Washington. I liked the apartment. It was affordable. It had a beautiful view of Mount Rainier out of the bedroom window. And the location was was what I needed. It was a small farming community. So very small, just working families. I mean, there was, it was just a a small little community. There wasn't, I didn't notice any crime. I, I feel like it was one of those places where the police have nothing to do all day. So I was working two or three jobs during the duration that I lived there. I was going to school for part of it. I would say that I suffered from like a little bit of depression, not like anything severe or anything, but I just really didn't have a lot of motivation to go out or, you know, make friends, just, you know, trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do with my life and just, you know, being 20. (laughs) So it was the first 
night, actually. As I was unpacking, I turned off the music and I was laying in bed reading and I was just listening to the sounds of the apartment, listening to the traffic, listening to, you know, if I could hear the neighbors. And I could have swore that I, I heard the rhythmic steps of footsteps like above me. In my bedroom, there was a small crawl space door that just pushed up into the ceiling. And I was like, hmm, no, that's crazy. But it did stick with me. I did go to the landlord the next morning and asked her, you know, is there any way anyone could be up there? Like, I heard the sound. What are your thoughts? She thought it was an animal. And that explanation seemed reasonable, so I took it. But later on, while I lived there, I started to notice that doors would be open when I had left them closed, and that food started missing around the house. And I was, you know, constantly second-guessing myself, did I leave that? I could have swore I closed this door. And then the same with the food, you know, I bought a six-pack of soda, I had one, I come back, there's four, did I, did I drink too? And so I was constantly second-guessing myself. Eventually, throughout the time that I lived there, it did come to a point where I did start to pay attention. I thought my brother was coming into my apartment, and I started counting the sodas and counting the cans of soup and marking the milk. I became a little OCD. I knew they were different. And so I called my brother one day and I asked him, I was like, listen, don't come into my apartment. I can barely afford to feed myself. I can't afford to feed you. Like, stop coming in here and eating my food. And he, you know, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. You're nuts. And looking back on it now, <laughs> my brother would not have covered his traces. You know, like if he came into my apartment and ate my food, there would have been dirty dishes in the sink and a turd in my toilet. You know, like he's not going to clean up after himself. But this was always in the back of my mind, and I would always look up at that attic crawlspace door. Anytime I walked underneath it, anytime I got into bed, anytime I was anywhere near it, I would just kind of look, and obviously, deep down inside, I know something is up there. I know someone is up there. I think I didn't check, and also, I would have had gotten a ladder. It was in the ceiling, and I just, I don't know, I just, I don't think I wanted to know. A couple months later, I wasn't feeling well, so I had called in sick to my jobs, and I had spent the day on the couch just resting. And I had just been watching TV all day quietly. And around 7 o'clock at night, I heard a loud thump coming from the bedroom. And I dismissed it. Um, about four hours later, I turned off the TV I turned off the lights and I was getting ready for bed. And so I lit a candle in the bathroom and I drew a bath um, and I was sitting there in the bath and I look up and I can see the bedroom ceiling from the bathroom doorway and that crawl space door is open. And so everything just slowed down When fight or flight kicks in, there's a number of uh, physiological things that happen. And one of the things that happens is your brain speeds up, which gives the illusion of time slowing. And, and that is what I experienced. 
Um, it must have only been a maybe 30 seconds that I sat there in the tub, but it felt like five minutes. And I sat there and I put all the pieces together. Those were footsteps. I did close that door. There was food missing. It wasn't my brother. He's, he's in the apartment. Where is he? Where is he? And I think he was probably in the closet. So I thought, he's been living with me for six months. If he wanted to hurt me, I would be hurt. I've been here alone for six months. That's not what he wants. He probably just needs a place to stay. But if I let him know that I know he's here, he might hurt me so that I don't call the cops. So I need to be real chill. So I turned off the water and I very calmly got out of the tub. So I had to go into the bedroom to get my robe. And that was probably the eeriest part of it is those floor to ceiling sliding glass doors for the closet that were mirrored so I could see myself in the mirror. You know, I'm naked in the dark alone and he's on the other side of that door. I put on my robe. I went to the phone and underneath the phone there was a junk drawer and in the junk drawer there was a hammer. So I took the hammer out just to protect myself just like if he comes at me I'm not going down quietly and I called my brother and my sister-in-law answered the phone and she told me get out of the house just go I'm coming we called the police and the police went into the apartment and there was nobody there they went upstairs into the attic and he was gone but they found a little nest they found like a sleeping bag and a book and some food and that was the end of it. The next day, I, my grandparents came over and we packed up my apartment and I left. This story haunted me for a long time. I didn't live alone for a while until one day I was just like, I don't want this anymore. So I wrote it down. I was like, I want this out of my head. And then after that, it just became a story. It's just, I, I look back on it and it just seems surreal. It seems like it happened to someone else. I, I'm very curious about him. Um, I've always thought about it. Like, who was he? Where did he go? What happened to him? Why was he up there? Um, in Eamclaw, the winters do get pretty cold. So maybe he was just up there for the winter. Like, I don't know. But because I was also homeless when I was 15, I know that just because someone is lost and alone doesn't mean they're a bad person. Um, I would love to have a conversation with him. Rebecca Liu, you're one of the editors behind The Guardian's Experience column. And we've just heard a story that I genuinely think about probably once a week. Do you remember that column? Yes, that was published before I started editing it. But I remember coming across it on the website and seeing the headline and just being genuinely shocked. And then reading the story itself and just getting shocked all over again. So much of the news feels like this never-ending parade of miserable stuff. But this column feels different. How did you get into the role of editing it? And what is it like day to day? Yeah, I, I remember in the interview for the job, the editor asked, you know, 
part of this role will involve commissioning the experience column. Is that something you're excited about? And I immediately, you know, just went in deep about like how amazing and incredible it was to learn, for example, what it was like being swallowed by a hippo. Uh, So I've been a big fan uh, as a reader for a long time. And as an editor, I think it's how the column stirs up all these different emotions. There's Mm. some that are very sad and tender and moving. There are some that are just quite funny and absurd. And often all these emotions kind of coexist at once in one piece. Mm. I think the question that I and a lot of people have is... Where do you find these people? Where do you find their stories? Do they come to you or are you out there in the world just trying to find weird, bizarre stuff? Yeah, we have a great uh, group of regular writers who often come to me pitching ideas and I'm always astounded by what they manage to dig up. And then sometimes it's a combination of everyone has that niche fact at a pub sometimes when they're like, I heard of this crazy story and I'm sometimes guilty of, you know, it's 10 p.m. on a Friday, you're out with your friends and I sort of write that down on my phone. <laughs> like, I must investigate this for work. Do you do you ever come up with these ideas by thinking backwards? Like thinking, I wonder if someone has done something completely crazy. Like has someone ever lived in like one of those Ikea showroom bedrooms and get out in the world and discover, yes, there is that person and we're going to make him or her write a column for us? Yes, absolutely. Those often come out of editorial discussions of, you know, or just chats around the office. You know, past stories that have been commissioned by that sort of thinking backwards is a woman who was allergic to water. Mm. Uh, You know, that just sort of came about thinking, does this actually exist for anyone? What I'd like to know is... What is it that makes a really good experience story? Because there's lots of incredible stuff out there and there's lots of weird stuff out there. But I think these columns hit a kind of sweet spot that I can't really identify, but I suspect you know what you're looking for. Yeah, it's sort of like um, what the Supreme Court Justice said about pornography. It's hard to define, but you know it when you 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 see it. it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think... Maybe the thing I think most is a story that has a lot of humanity Mm. in it. And so sometimes I think if we're doing someone who's a world champion in something, it might not be football, for example, but it would be in toe wrestling, which is what we've done. And I think also the way that people make themselves very vulnerable in their stories, um, I think that also makes stories work. So when I was 26, I moved from London to Ghana. And it was all because my husband got a job there. And that was an amazing sense of adventure. But the problem was I wasn't allowed to work. I had no friends, no TV, no car, no internet. I had nothing. And I had no idea how to be. Luckily, we moved to rural Ghana, which you might think would be even worse for someone very lonely. But actually... It gave me the opportunity to start going outside all the time. And so I would walk through the high grasslands down by the river. And while there were very venomous snakes, there were also wonderfully coloured, wonderfully sounding birds. And I've always loved birds. And it gave me a big kind of sense of belonging because they're, they're wonderful and they made me feel like I wasn't alone. In September... Ghana is a very sort of rainy, wet month. It's the beginning of the rainy season. And as a result, every day, there are these huge storms and thunder and lightning. One day, I 
came across all of these nests that had been blown down after a really big storm. And they belong to mannequin finches that are very like sparrows. And I started looking at them and discovered that there was one bird still there, a very young fledgling. And he was drenched. His eyes were closed. He looked half dead. And his whole flock was nowhere to be seen. Just imagine this absolutely tiny, so smaller than your little finger, brown bird, really just the saddest state you could imagine. But when I picked him up, I instinctively chirped at him and he chirped back. When I first found the bird, I thought, you know, should I be rescuing him or should I leave him there? I really didn't rate his chances come the night time. So to keep this bird alive, but then to also return him to the wild, I didn't know how to do that. So I got advice from an ornithologist, you know, just found this this person on Google. And they said, look, if you want to do that, it will probably take you 12 weeks and you'll have to bond with him so he trusts you. So raising a fledgling bird, especially one that's going to be wild, requires the bird to be with you all the time. So me and this finch did everything together. That meant that when I got dressed, the finch would decide it was a game and start flying under my clothes, zipping into my bra. When I went to the loo, uh, he would want to come with me and he would try and dive onto my lap. So I would be having this precarious situation where I'd be trying to guard the loo seat so that he wouldn't dive into the loo seat. (laughs) It was also just really fun that he had such a goofy personality. So mannequin finches make nests out of the stems of the guinea grass that they eat the seeds of. And I just so happen to have waist-long hair. And I suppose if you look at the individual strands of brown hair, they don't look entirely dissimilar to the stems of the grass. And instinctively, at some point, about halfway through his time with me, he began doing it to my hair. So suddenly he would be abseiling (laughs) all the way down to my waist and nipping and tucking my hair into these little locks of nooks and crannies. And at the end of every day, he would make a little nest and then sort of sit on the ledge of my collarbone, because to him, it was this perfect space, completely surrounded by the little nest he had just made. And he would fall asleep, making this sort of purring sound. Lots and lots of people have thought when they read the headline of this idea of a nest in my hair, that it was more sort of like a Radagast situation where he was flying with, you know, sticks and branches and leaves and sort of sticking them to my hair and then pooing in it. But it wasn't like that at all. He would never poo in my hair because to him it was his bed. And so he would politely back out of my hair if he needed to poo, poo over the side of my hand and then get back into his little nest of my hair. I know that lots of people have wondered why on earth I didn't give the Finch a name, especially because we were so close. But at the back of my mind, I was always remembering that he was a wild bird and that whole goal was actually to release him back into the wild. So at the end of the three months, when the bird was clearly ready to go, you know, he had changed his plumage, his instincts had changed, that he was flying away from me for longer. And I knew he was ready to go back to his flock. I knew also that he wouldn't go from me. He wouldn't fly from me. 
And so I knew I couldn't release him. So I left that enormous responsibility to my husband, aptly named Robin, uh, who would release him on, on my behalf because although he knew Robin, he didn't have the same bond. And so when I left him, he was asleep in his nest and I knew I'd never see him again. And it was, it felt like I was betraying him. And he didn't go. He didn't go for a little bit. In fact, it took four days for him to fly. So he thought about flying. He flew off sort of one time and then came back. And on the fourth day, he flew high. And this always makes me cry. And I'm not sorry about it. I'm quite proud of this. He would fly. He, he flew really strongly high with the flock. And Robin is an ex-military man, you know, not as emotional or sensitive as I am, hadn't loved the bird in the same way. And he phoned up and his voice broke. And all he said to me was, Hannah, he's done it. So after Christmas, I never thought I would see him again. And I was trying to accept that. But I was looking at the flock, wondering whether he was there not knowing because they all look the same so it's impossible to tell and they flew back to roost like they always do to the mango trees at 5 30 p.m and one of them who had flown past tracked back round and came right really close to me and and perched on the nearest branch to me and cocked his head and looked at me and i chirped and he chirped back <laughs> You know, one of the things I love about this column that I think this story really sums up is that it begins with this headline that is like a little bit crazy. Like, I let a baby bird nest in my hair for 84 days. But then as you're hearing more and more of the story, you kind of end up in this point where it's kind of relatable. Like, I definitely can relate to the feeling of putting a lot of effort into something and then having it end and it's almost bittersweet and you still carry it with you like that is very relatable even if the bird in your hair is not yes and i think that's also why it ended up working so well you know when i just saw the headline i was like i'm not sure about this but hannah whose story it is you know was able to really bring out the emotional side of the story what drew her to doing this how it made her feel and you know saying goodbye to the bird was such an emotional ending So good, yeah. How do readers respond to the column? Do you hear back from people often when these columns go out in the world about how it's affected them? Yeah, I think... uh you know, compared to um, possibly other other forms of journalism, uh, the experience <laughs> column has a very positive reaction from readers. And I, I think it's because you have people just very sincerely and with so much generosity sharing their story and opening themselves up. Mm. And yeah, we've definitely, you know, had a few stories about people sharing their hardship and unexplained or curious medical conditions and then you'll get people writing in you know offering potential diagnoses or just advice or thoughts yeah i think there is seems to be a very kind of nice community around the column which is nice coming up one last experience and a clue about why these stories have such appeal Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. So the boat itself was a, it was a beautiful 38 foot catamaran. And um, yeah, it's pretty much one of my dream boats, to be honest. It was beautiful because I had this sort of dream of having a totally off-grid boat. So put lots of solar panels on. It was really close to being this sort of like post-apocalyptic, almost water world style boat. And it? it sailed like an absolute witch. It was such a beautiful boat on the water. Basically, it was a 10 or 11 day sail from the Azores back north to England. We'd been at sea for three to four days. I think we were on our third or fourth night. We'd literally just popped out the other side of the, the tricky parts and we were just moving into what was going to be a slightly nicer period of sail. And it was, it was 10 o'clock at night. It was dark and the boat was flying along at 10 knots. It, was, it felt great. Kids were asleep. Kim, who was my girlfriend at the time, she was down in the cabin and I was in the centre on watch. I, I can't even remember what I was, what I was, I think I was, I was watching something like Rick and Morty or something like that at the time. And um, basically there was just this almighty bang. Then I just heard Kim's voice. She said like, Zach. And you know when someone says your voice in a tone that you know it's sort of serious. As soon as I got down into the into the cabin on the side of the boat that Kim was on, the water was already sort of almost my knees. It, it, it's staggering how fast a boat fills up with water once it's got a hole in. I knew that at this stage there was a hole. I just had to find where it was and how big it was. But initially, I thought we'd hit a container because that's sort of a fairly common 
thing to do. My hands came on to a, a big piece of plywood and I lifted that out of the water and flipped it over and that's where I saw the really dark grey. It's a beautiful, beautiful colour, really dark grey. And then, and then a really light coloured, strange looking pink blubbery thing. Uh, that's when I knew it was a whale. It was just that dark, dark flesh with a bit of pink blubber. It's us that hit the whale. You know, the whale was just peacefully sleeping and we were silently flying along. And it's not as if there was any engines. So if there, you know, the, it, he would have moved out the way or it would have woke him up. We were totally silent. While this was all going on, Kim, she was sort of like bucketing out water. And I was like, Kim, honestly, don't worry about it. It's coming in way faster than we can get this out. This is gone. We, we have to get Willow out. The Willow's my youngest daughter. It was a cat around. The two kids were in separate cabins. And then I'm just trying to make as much of the boat as watertight as possible. You know, water will always make its way through, but it was just to sort of buy ourselves as much time as we could. So we were 300 miles north of the Azores. We were 500 miles from Portuguese coast and 800 miles from, from Palmer. Uh, luckily, we had an EPIRB on board. It's an incredible safety device, which you basically push a button and it alerts all coast guards internationally of the fact that there is a boat in distress and it basically gives them your GPS coordinates. You press a button and you have zero feedback. You know, you don't know if it actually worked or if anyone was going to respond. I'd calculated that we were 300 miles from the Azores, even if they'd sent a boat from the Azores to where we were, 300 miles, it would have taken them sort of 12 to 15 hours to get to us. I was chain smoking, we're just chatting about death, basically. You just go to some really dark places, essentially you feel terribly guilty as a parent because of your choices. Even though they're asleep at the time and had no idea what was going on, they're in a life-threatening situation um, because of a choice that you'd made. That's a hard pill to swallow. We obviously, there's my dog, Nala. We wouldn't be able to take her into a lifeboat, so we're quite discussing what's the most humane way to, to dispatch the dog. You know, that's where you're at. It's a, quite a morbid place to be. And you know that, that the end result is, is probably not going to be a good one. So you're just figuring out how to um, sort of make peace with that, really. About that moment, I was sat there smoking. Kim was inside and I saw a light in the sky. You know, it's getting brighter and brighter. It's coming towards us and it basically came, came over, did make three or four loops overhead you know in your head you expect a ladder to drop down you know it's like in like some James Bond thing you pull us all up but instead this plane circled us a few times and we didn't have any radio communication and then it and then it blew up and that was that was like really heartbreaking but at least we knew we'd been spotted so it was around about 4 30 in the morning and a very low lying light appeared on the horizon and it just very very slowly got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger 
And uh, as they got closer, and the, you know, these gas tankers, are, they're absolutely ginormous. So he, he sort of pulled up, we all piled in the dinghy and paddled over. It's a really hard thing to even sort of put into words and, and quantify because, you, you know, in your mind you're a goner and then all of a sudden you're not. That's when you sort of back down to earth and you realise essentially what had been lost. It had been a dream that I'd been working towards for years. There was obviously a lot of personal possessions that were on the boat. There's also like that inherent sort of sense of failure in a way that you have to sort of deal with and make peace with. Boats you can insure if you're not but not offshore, so there's no no insurance. It's just a bit of pill to swallow, really. People have just been absolutely incredible. Obviously, the GoFundMe helped me get on my feet. Every single time that the story was published, and especially from the column in The Guardian, there was a noticeable surge in donations after I should have come back to England a long time ago. It's been 10 years since I'd been back in England. You know, I'm good at running. And I think that in many ways, going to the sea, I was essentially just running away from what was going on in the world. You know, working with my brother, seeing my dad. I didn't realize quite how important all of that is. I'm not in any rush now. Um, I've got other things to do now. I can see that life's taken a different path. You know, if you take that different way of looking at it and that experiences happen to us, that's one way that my mind makes peace with the situation. Rebecca, how did you feel once you found out that Zach's column had meant that he'd been able to kind of rebuild his life after this really bizarre encounter with the whale? That was really lovely to hear. Um, I think sometimes when you're, you know, on this side of a newspaper, you often are just focused on getting stories out and, and sort of getting things through the pipeline that it's good to remind yourselves that, you know, the stories do have an impact on people, in this case, in a really transformative way. Mm. This column is now more than 20 years old. Do you reckon in another 20 years time, it's still going to be around? I really hope so. Yeah, I, I think it's a very precious institution. Though I do remember when I was sort of taking over the job, the previous editor had said, because it's been going on since the 90s, the bar for experiences has been raised. You've run out of experiences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he said, you know, we've done, I was attacked by a shark. So last week we did, I was attacked by two sharks. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So we'll see if people can continue experiencing uh, things at higher stakes. Three sharks, I guess, is the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right in. <laughs> Finally, what do you think, at the end of the day, is the appeal of this column? Why has it been so successful? Why do people get so obsessed with it? What does it speak to in them? I think something I think about when I commission is almost... The main character of the experience column is the absurdity of life itself. <laughs> um, mm. So something, again, the previous editor had said to me, which has stayed with me, is the column isn't really so much about, you know, incredible people actively seeking incredible things. It's not about 
you know, wonderful mountain climbers or very impressive world champions. You know, it's sort of about people who have these really strange things happen to them or are called in some way to do something that that might on the surface seem really, really strange. But when you dig into it, you know, it makes complete sense. Um, and is in fact quite affecting why why they love these hobbies. And that's something that everyone can relate to, you know, that life is extremely strange and bizarre. Um, and so is <laughs> so is sort of the best parts of people. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Rebecca Liu, a commissioning editor at The Guardian who runs the Experience column, which you can find each week at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.